0: This
1: is channel 253.
0: In this episode of Nerd Farmer.
1: I always said that when I was done teaching, I was going to just run as far away from education as possible. And I don't know that I'm done teaching, but I know that um, the 15 minutes I was grabbing every fifth day to have some capacity to think of things outside of my own classroom wasn't enough. And, and, and most of those things were still education related.
0: Channel 253 is supported by Microsoft. Microsoft is committed to civic conversations like those on Channel 253 that inform and empower Washington communities. To learn more, visit aka.ms slash Microsoft in Washington. This is the Nerd Farmer podcast, a national conversation through a local lens.
2: Welcome to the Nerd Farmer Podcast. My name is Nate, and I'm your host of Tacoma Abroad. Today's episode is brought to us by our friends at Microsoft. We have a returning guest. His name is Tom Rademacher. He's the 2014 Minnesota Teacher of the Year. You may remember we had him on the show in April of 2020 in the early days of COVID during the pandemic to talk about teaching online and also anti-racist education. Uh, he has released a book called Raising Ollie, and we've him back on today to talk about that book and also the state of affairs in teaching. So, Tom, welcome to the show.
1: Thanks for having me, Nate. Good to see you again. It's always good to see you.
2: Uh, So for folks who haven't heard the prior episode, uh, well, actually... So Tom is the person who I feel like is most similar to me in his advocacy and his disposition, except for the fact that Tom is a white dude and teaches English and I'm a black guy that teaches social studies, except that Tom is like not as social, I think, as I am. And so I, I'm excited for this conversation because I just want to touch base on a few things that like I'm seeing and kind of get your read on them. So Tom, you are... In Minnesota, and you are looking at our beloved profession like I am, what is your read on how things are going for our fellow practitioners right now?
1: Man, I mean, like a whole lot of stuff that we didn't need right now, right? Like, um, I mean, April of 2020, thinking about like where we were then as a headspace of grasping everything and you know in april 2020 if you had shown teachers like hey here's what the next two years are going to look like i wonder how many of us would have just like you know bounced right then um but yeah i mean you know um minnesota is a pretty uh progressive place and even still you know we have Uh, bills that won't pass, but are being introduced about teachers having to post all their stuff online and about, you know, critical race theory stuff. And, you know, all that stuff is still happening kind of as an undercurrent here. Um, You know, even though we're, we're fairly well protected and, you know, that stuff is just the amount of, the amount of decisions that, that we have to make in a classroom every day and to add any other, other like filter of like, Uh, is this going to be the thing that gets me the emails or is this going to be the thing that a parent grabs onto, or is this going to be whatever? Um, It's just like another level of exhaustion that gets added to it. And um, you know, I, I don't know a teacher that, that isn't struggling this year. Yeah.
2: I'm in my 16th year in the classroom, which is really weird to say out loud. Cause that means I'm getting old very fast. Uh, and I look back at a lot of folks who I care about deeply, uh, in Tacoma where like left the game and a lot of folks nationwide who like I interacted with when I was like doing the speaking, talking circuit, whatever. And folks who I met who have left the profession and are like doing something else right now. And it's really hard. Like I, I love teaching and I love what I do. Uh, I'm, I'm in a context right now where like my, my life's pretty great, honestly. Like, uh, but that's because I'm not in the States and I see a lot, a lot of folks who I care about look really miserable right now. Um, what do you think is the hardest part about the job of being a teacher right now? Is it like the accumulation of everything, like, like the, everything in concert or is there a particular thing that makes it harder now in 2022 than it was like back when we were young pups?
1: Uh, yeah. I mean, like I, like I said that, like, I don't know anyone who has been struggling this year and that's weird because in in almost every measurable possible way, this year should be a lot better than last year. Yeah. Um, and so I do think it is like, but this year came after, right like we, we so like all the all the weight of last year and all the way to the year before that, um, and you know, in a lot of ways, teaching was in crisis and schools were in crisis before the pandemic, before Trump's election before insurrections and you know all, all of this stuff that is is bleeding into our classroom like crazy um so you know I, I do think it is just like that accumulated weight of all of it and you know teachers like everybody else are, are living in the same world as uh, you know we're, we also when we go home you know are watching the news, reading stuff, interacting with people, like everybody is having a hard few years. And so like, I think we have just like less and less to give. Um, so yeah, and maybe if there's a short answer to like, what's the hardest part is just like the amount of yourself that you have to give in order to do good at, at the job.
2: Yeah. Some, something I struggle with in my head is I wonder is part of this that like it's always been this hard and then that like folks who i've been following in the profession and folks who i kind of came into the job with 16 years ago we're getting a bit older and we're a bit worn out like we've always heard the stories about how much turnover there is in like the first five years of teaching and so part of me wonders like like it's definitely harder now because of the political element like the, the the fights we were having before were, were like curricular fights and about what to do within the classroom, not being acted upon by outside actors and, like, the politicization of education through, like, the political right, which actually brings... Here's here's actually a point I wanted to pick pick a brain about. Is is there an off-ramp to this current era of, like, hyper-partisanship? Actually, no, I'm not going to call it hyper-partisanship. That excuses folks. Is there an off-ramp to this, like, right-wing moral panic nonsense that we're in the midst of in the States?
1: I mean, I think there is. Like, uh, because at some point, they're going to pick a different moral panic. I mean, like, it's it, it oh, really uh, like, uh, and that's when you, when you would look at like, you know, the, the satanic panic and, and, and then everything that came, you know, then it was the, the drug wars and then it was, um, you know, feminism and then it w- whatever it was, you know, like the new thing that's going to get people all riled up so that they can kind of like excite and, and control their base a little bit. Um, and like the education one is just, hitting home right now for people or mm-hmm. it's drumming people up in the way that they want them to be drummed up. Um, you know, and, and like, like all things that will, that will end, that will go away. Um, you know, I think there's, there's that idea. And I don't know where these numbers all come from, but like, uh, even among people for who they don't trust teachers, largely trust the teacher of their own child. Yeah. Um, and I don't know, like, you know, post CRT nonsense where people are still at with that. But like, um, for the most part, like once you get someone in conversation, I was just talking with a with a school librarian yesterday who was saying like, uh, the only time she's had real problems with with parents is when she hasn't gotten to talk to them about a book Um, that's in her library right like a conversation a human connection will often tamp down some of that like really reactionary thought and behavior and so you know I think they're slow though it may be I do think that like people are going to start to continue, like, well, continue to experience the fact that their child is not being brainwashed at school and be like, wait, all this stuff that we're worried about, like, actually isn't happening. Um, and then it'll be, you know, whatever's next, like, but reptile people are real. Let's go yell at them over there, whatever it is, you know? The last
2: time we had you on, we were talking about anti-racist teaching and, For me, that is like the least controversial thing on earth, theoretically, and somehow has become a boogeyman uh, on the political right. And so I wonder, as somebody who's a pretty outspoken anti-racist in their classroom practice, uh, what has it been like for you to watch kind of this moral panic against anti-racism unfold? And like, what in particular pushback did you experience?
1: Um, I mean, I'm I'm in a really interesting school and I, I think we talked about this a little bit last time you know like i i'm just outside of minneapolis um mm. the district uh is a really small district so it, it kind of has this like weird small town feel even though we, we border minneapolis it's just like this little place um but also like our police department was responsible for killing philando castile and when there was protests against that um you know like we pretty much share a parking lot with the police department um kind of all gathered together there so like the community it's it's all very very immediate and there was a huge division in the community among like you know it was black, back the blue signs mixed in with black lives matter signs like every other house and and neighbors that weren't talking to each other and all that stuff and and a lot of that tension is still there um and certainly like it's you know, my experience the last few years is that like as we as teachers try to push for um stronger and better and more informed anti-race education is is we weren't making either side happy. <laughs> so, you know, like uh for one side, you know, for for a uh progressive um leftist kind of side of things we weren't moving fast enough, um, which I understand. And then for another side, it was, you know, how dare you talk about systemic racism in class? Why don't you just do normal English, uh, was, you know, often what I get, um, you know, but the, the leadership is, was on board. And so like, and, and I have a, a cohort of some really great teachers that that I work with who are doing the work alongside and with me and leading me. And so, you know, there's enough community there and a strong enough community there. And I think enough immediacy in it where we can look around. I mean, you know, I think I don't need to retell the story of like Minneapolis over the last few years. Um, When I can talk to a parent again and say, look, the kids are talking about race, whether we, bring it up in class or not. So we would like to give kids tools to talk about it in a productive way and in a way that doesn't actually like further conflict. Um, for the most part, parents have been ready to hear that. I think
2: it's, it's, you said you don't want to tell the story or retell the story of Minneapolis the last few years, but I think it is interesting that Minneapolis is where Philando Castile was killed where George Floyd was killed, where Amir Locke was killed, and the uh, also, oh, I don't recall her name, the Australian woman that was killed by the police officer as well. And so I remember that whole thing happening because like it was a it was a Somali American police officer. And so like I knew they were gonna put, bury, bury him under the jail. Yep. So I, I guess I I I wonder, is the conversation about these issues of police abuse of authority and police killing, is it especially like hot and heavy in Minneapolis or is it like, 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 you know what I mean? Like, like, like I feel like it's been ground zero for so many incidents. Is it especially a fraught uh, fight there?
1: Uh, in within Minneapolis and like the inner ring, it's, it's not, um, the fight is with the, like the exurbs and beyond the people who are, are now scared to come into Minneapolis because it's so lawless and awful, you know, all these nonsense things that are being said. um, There was just another thing like in the last couple of weeks where uh, one of the Minneapolis middle schools in their school paper said, hey, if you are looking to go um, protest, here's some like general guidelines for how to protest respectfully. And and included in that was this idea that, you know, if you're a if you're a white person and you're you're protesting police brutality and someone passes you the the blowhorn like keep passing it. <laughs> like it's, mm. you, you know, you're there to support and be an ally and you're not there to speak out front. Um, and you know, some, uh, national, uh, anti or anti-anti-racist, uh, I think we just call that racist, but, yeah. yeah, uh, yeah. Grif- or, or pro-racist, right? Yeah. Pro-racist grifters, uh, who, we know from twitter have you know grabbed out of that and made it a new story to try to raise money off of and and whatever um and that's what it is you know like the fight is the people from outside um who aren't acting in good faith aren't trying to have an actual conversation who are just trying to to take things as proof that you know awful things are happening inside the city uh, before
2: we started rolling you were talking about your current work situation uh, before we get there just to clarify uh, so this would be this is your sixteenth year or seventeenth year in the classroom sixteenth right year
1: yeah
2: sixteenth year so we start with start at the same time uh, do you want to talk a bit about your current leave that you're on and kind of what you're thinking about and how you're evaluating things right now
1: yeah um yeah so i'm I'm on a leave from the classroom right now that's that's um you know I I've been working with my district on it for a while to kind of figure out how it's going to, how that would work. But I mean, it's a hard thing to, it's a hard thing to really like talk about. I think even bringing it up ever, uh, I feel really guilty. I mean, like right now on, on, while we're recording this, I should be in my classroom. I should be in front of my students. Um, you know, like, so every day that I've been, off on leave you know i spend a good portion of the day just like faces cycling through my head and like um this thing came up in the news how would i talk about this um but you know it was there was kind of this like slow burn of it just i think all teachers understand this balance of like teaching takes a lot out of you and you get a lot from it um and for 15 and a half years i got more than it was taking um and it was you know it's hard but it was it felt sustainable just in the way that like i i was getting a lot from it that was also you know um giving me senses of like purpose and and worth and a lot of joy and a lot of um good things like that and at some point you know kind of probably slowly at the end of last year into the beginning of this school year. um, It felt like that balance had just kind of tipped. And I always said that when I was done teaching, I was going to just run as far away from education as possible. Um, And I don't know that I'm done teaching, but I know that um, the 15 minutes I was grabbing every fifth day to have some capacity to think of things outside of my own classroom, um, wasn't enough. And, and, and most of those things were still education related, you know, most of those things were looking at, um, the situation and, and the, the emotions that teachers feel themselves in right now and where that profession is. Um, you know, I want to, I want to devote time to that. And I couldn't, while I was in the classroom and knowing that I wanted to was making it harder for me to stay. And it was just like a switch flipped in there where like all of a sudden it was like, I, I think there's some other stuff out there for me and and just thinking about it is making it harder for me to, to be here just day to day.
2: How much of that was like the COVID and like being online versus how much of it was just like the existential job of being an educator in 2022?
1: I mean, I think a lot of it was and is, like, COVID. Um, you know, this, this year, kids are in the classroom again. You're having relationships with kids again. Uh, or, like, building relationships with kids. They're, they're great. They're funny. They're fun. They're smart. They're surprising. They're all these things. Um, but, you know, kids and, like, students also needed and need so much more from teachers this year as they recover from the last couple years. And so I think it was just, even though like the joy was back in the job, it was still, you know, I was, I was just paying out more than I was taking in um, every day.
2: No, that, that resonates with me a lot. That's part of the reason why I'm here and not there. Like it would, for me, it was, I either need to stop doing this or I need to change the scenery. And then like, I have a case of the wanderlust. So change of scenery became change of scenery. And so what you're going through is totally reasonable to me. Uh, we actually brought you on to talk about your book. And so I read this over the summer and meant to get you on earlier on, but I'm a terrible adult and dropped the ball. Uh, tell us a bit about your book, Raising Ollie.
1: Yeah, so there was uh, my, my first book Which is called "It Won't Be Easy," Uh, and the original title of the first book was "Welcome to the Shit Show," uh, which is still (laughs) the first chapter of the book is called that. Um, But it was the one fight I lost with the the publisher was the book title. But uh, was that book was very much for newer teachers, um, but teachers in general. But like it was very much a here's a book about teaching, a memoir about teaching, and in my head. I felt like I knew what, like, the nat- the natural sequel to that book was going to be. Um, and I started it a few times and just, like, kept being, like, I don't care about this. Uh, like, I just, I, it just never quite uh, grabbed me. And then I started writing an essay at one point about we were choosing a new school for my kid and... The process of choosing this new school brought up all this stuff, not just about what it was to be their parent, but also as a teacher and talking about, you know, what you're looking for in a school, what schools could and should do, whatever. So I'm like starting to write this essay about it. And that essay just like all of a sudden was like 20,000 words. And I was like, had all these asterisks in it of like, oh, I I can't talk about being a dad without kind of talking about my dad. I can't talk about. Yeah my kid without talking about all the different things that make up who my kid is. Um, and, you know, there, I can't talk about their art without talking about why art is important to me as a dad and like what that was like, I can't talk about their anxiety without talking about my anxiety and what that's like. So just like all of a sudden it became this like jumble of things of uh, the story I wanted to tell about what it is to be a dad specifically what it's like to raise my child um and like those are messy those are messy stories you know it's a it's not a how-to a to b no, uh, no it's certainly not no uh, <laughs> it definitely isn't <laughs> and i and i think you know i think i think parents understand that but i think also like anyone who's had a, a you know it's any family relationship you understand that like they're more complex than than one element of of that person or one event, um, and so I tried to just that—that that captured me in a way that I really wanted to write, kind of a a realistic idea of what of what it is to to raise a kid right now.
2: Yeah, something I've always appreciated about your writing is you've always, like, tapped into the very very visceral, like, what the hell is this nonsense nature of our profession? Like, our profession is very, very important and noble and, and, like, it moves society forward and it's essential. But also, like, there's a lot of just, like, dumb shittery where you're like what is happening right now like what are middle school boys doing right now like why is this happening what is this meeting and like you're one of the few writers who i feel like taps into that in a way where i'm like yes somebody sees the way i do and i'm not a parent and i thank god every day i'm not a parent but you <laughs> did the same thing with parenting with this and like i really appreciated this like i did not think that i'd be reading a book about like some guy in minnesota raising his kid but it's pretty awesome uh, so the 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 I have my paper here. So the title of the book is Raising Ollie, How My Non-Binary Art Nerd Kid Changed Nearly Everything I Know. Uh, We don't have Ollie on the show right now. Uh, What are they like?
1: Uh, I mean, primarily, Ollie's a really big nerd. Um, But in general, like, man, I mean, so I'll just go through the list there from the title. But like, so Ollie's non-binary has... uh, been outwardly non-binary or identified as non-binary since uh the very beginning of fourth grade and they're now in middle school uh that's a big part of who they are and a big part of who like their friend group and, and stuff like that um they are uh really really into art and are a really talented artist they gave some of the illustrations for the book which is really fun um and in a couple of years they'll hate it because like every artist they look back on things that they've done and get really upset uh and yeah I mean they're also just an incredibly intense kid um they feel things really intensely um they interact with the world really intensely their brain is just one of those brains that is going just a million miles an hour all the time uh so you know they'll come out of their room after like being in their room for five hours and and I'm like hey we got to get you like off your screens and stuff like we can't just have you like wasting time on your computer and they'll be like, Oh, well, yeah, I was teaching myself how to like rig a 2d illustration to an animation, uh, you know, so I can bub like stuff so far above my, my head. Uh, and I was like, Oh yeah, I was looking at otter videos. Um, so your thing was better. (laughs) Um, (laughs) And that's just like where they're – that's just their constant – they're constantly just like doing stuff well above what you'd think they would be doing Um, and just interacting with the world in like super, super cool ways.
2: Is it weird raising a child who, for all intents and purposes, if is not smarter than you, like would be smarter than you if they had the experiences?
1: um yeah I mean like it certainly wouldn't have been my choice uh I've known a couple like really really intelligent people in my life and like high intelligence does not always match up with like a happy life um and so yeah I mean like I Ali is certainly smarter than I am um and as they but like also often can't find their other shoe when it's on their foot. Uh, You know, so (laughs) I'm still necessary in lots of ways. Um, Yeah. I mean, it's, it's really interesting. Like there's, there's so many times where, you know, we're certainly like, I just want to be like, can you just chill out and do this thing? Or like, can you just chill out and just like watch this thing? And they're like, no. (laughs) Like, uh, So yeah, it's, 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 There's high intensity there all the time.
2: Yeah, it sounds like it. So we'll take a break here. And then on the second half, what I want to do is I want to share some of my favorite passages and kind of have you tell the story of either what's happening with Ollie, and then also what was happening with you because a lot about your practice as well. Uh, In particular, I want to hear about the guy with a manila envelope on back to school night. So we'll be back.
3: Hello, I'm Evelyn Lopez, host of the Channel 253 podcast, Crossing Division. This episode of Channel 253 is sponsored by Microsoft. Microsoft is proud to support Rainier Scholars. Rainier Scholars believes that all students deserve an equal opportunity to excel academically and become our next community and business leaders. And now they're in the 253. Rainier Scholars Tacoma is a long-term college readiness program for underrepresented students of color in the Tacoma community. They recruit in the fourth grade, start working with students and families the summer before fifth grade, and walk alongside them through college completion with the goal of graduating with minimal debt. Do you know a student who should be part of the first Tacoma cohort? Recruitment is now underway. Microsoft and Rainier Scholars share the desire to cultivate a growth mindset and believe every student deserves the opportunity to achieve more. To find out more about Rainier Scholars in Tacoma, visit RainierScholars.org and click Tacoma. My thanks to Microsoft for their support of Channel 253 and Rainier Scholars.
2: And we are back. Thank you so much for downloading the show today. This show is part of the Channel 253 Podcast Network. We're a network of podcasts giving voices, or sorry, giving uh, a place for voices that you won't hear elsewhere. Uh, We do this because we believe in community and we believe in storytelling and we want to make the world a better place. If you enjoy what you're listening to right now and enjoy what we do with the network, I'm going to ask you to consider joining Channel 253 as a member. Your membership would cost $4 a month or $40 a year. It's worth it. It's worth it. Uh, and membership gets you access to our member-only Slack and also Doug's off-the-record member-only podcast. In the member-only Slack, we have a couple of channels that are up and running right now. One, about the Ukrainian conflicts, although by the time this airs, at the rate things are going, this may be over for the good. Uh, there's also a channel again, I keep talking about it, about books where Kenny Koble and everybody are talking about the books they're reading. Tacoma news is always, always popping. And now the sounders are underway. The soccer channel is popping as well. And so think about joining. No, don't think about it. Just do it. Like you've been thinking about it too long. Just do it. Do it. Join Channel 253 as a member. It is channel253.com slash membership. Uh, also, if you want to help the show out and you're already a member, one thing you can do is write a review. Uh, if you write a review, algorithms work that way. It helps people find the show. Uh, you can write one on Apple Podcasts and also on Spotify, although Spotify is complicated and Joe is an asshole, that's a different conversation. All right, Tom, we're back. So this is a book about raising a kid, but it's more about like, it's also about you just kind of being your kind of awesome doofus self. And so what I kind of want to do is run through some of my favorite passages and then kind of have you tell us the kind of backstory to those, if you don't mind. Yeah, for sure. All right. uh, This first one is one that hits home for me because you and I have talked about how we kind of run from the school choice fight. And like my avoidance of the school choice fight has accelerated since I moved overseas because like... Hello, I work at a private school that's an international school. That like is quasi public because we get embassy like support, but like whatever. Like I, I would be an absolute doofus to talk about school choice in a negative way working in a private school. That being said, uh, the passage I really appreciated was. I don't understand the choice debate well enough to really participate, and finding anyone we'll talk about without shouting is difficult. Intellectually, I know every answer seems to create its own problems. But personally, I know the feeling of sending my daughter to a school they don't like, and that isn't really teaching them. It's not a good feeling, and theirs is not at all a failing school. A school that is falling apart, or a school where my daughter is not valued, encouraged, or believe. All is in a school that doesn't work great for them, and so we found a new one that does school choice why is the school choice debate so effing
1: stupid i think because at at our core no one hates charter schools that's not true some people really hate charter schools but like (laughs) mostly what we hate or what what, you know charter schools aren't ruining education like the lack of funding is ruining education and Mm -hmm. so like the the battle isn't like, well, these schools are ruining our school or, you know, kids choosing schools are, are whatever. The like actual battle is being fought above that, which is like, why are we giving our schools enough money to do what we want them to do well? And so be- because we're not, because we're underfunding our schools, a lot of battles come down to, you know, fighting over like the scraps that we get. So right now in Minneapolis, so both Minneapolis and St. Paul, um, both teachers unions have um, filed notice to strike in the, within the next like week or two. It's um, so like both major cities might be striking at exactly the same time. And when you read like the, the teacher demands, none of them are unreasonable. And when you look at it from the district point of view, you realize that it would be nearly impossible to do half of them before running Mm -hmm. out of money and having to like tank the entire district. Right. Um, And it's like, I think the district would want to give you all those things if the funding was there. Um, I think the same is true about, you know, about charter schools, about choice, about all those things. Um, I think there's a lot of acrimony around it, but it all comes from, like the scarcity economy that we're all running on in schools.
2: Yeah, it's I have been screamed at by my fellow well, actually nobody screams at me in real life because like I don't take that shit. But but so I've I've been yelled at online uh by my fellow practitioners and fellow union members about like my not hating charter schools. And the thing for me is that like if you don't want black and brown and low-income families in that order by the way, to choose charter schools, then how can we make the existing schools places where there are kids where they feel like their kids are loved cared for and valued? And that but that's also too easy of an answer because the reason why it's hard to do so is because of funding like you're talking about. I I, I get so frustrated with the school choice fight because I see people who I agree with on like 85% of the issues and act just like absolute buffoons. And I'm like, what are you doing? And like watching people who like otherwise should be allies fighting over like minute details to me is like the most fatiguing thing in the world. And I feel like the fight never gets better and there's never a new argument. It's just the same trench, throw a grenade, lob a grenade, break a relationship, ruin a friendship, whatever, over and over again. And it's, it's, it's so tedious, but I don't know how to, uh, so I I just don't see an off ramp for the same tired, awful fight, uh, besides just not engaging in it. And then in not engaging in it, I'm basically seeding the ground in the profession as a teacher to folks who have like crazier and louder views.
1: Yeah. I mean, there's, uh, you know, in my, my teacher of the year, year i thought i was going to really come in there as a a a moderating voice in that discussion a little bit and be like hey why don't we get some people together from both sides and and have an actual conversation about that and like the level to which that blew up before it was even named (laughs) and then and then the level to which like there are people within my union that to this day cannot stand me and, and pray for my downfall. And there are people within like the reform charter, whatever network that like absolutely can't stand me. And, you know, and it's again, it's, it's on most things. It's like, we agree on so many things. And like you said, it's, it's these, these little pieces that you have decided are of the utmost importance to you. And, and so much so that you are unwilling to like recognize any nuance in in that conversation.
2: Yeah, right? and I, I, maybe I'm a stooge and I didn't see it coming, but I'm also shocked the extent to which a lot of the folks in the school choice fight have become like the willing dupes. Actually, dupes is the wrong word. That, that deprives me of agency. Uh, have become the willing foot soldiers of the CRT moral panic. And it's that moderate white market-based reform educator who we never should have trusted in the first place who was like taking up arms with the CRT moral panic who I find like the most I I don't know why I'm I shouldn't be surprised or disappointed but I somehow find myself being both and I don't know why I'm being both like I should have known better but like that's the other element is is that a lot of the school choice warriors from like 2012 and so on have just become like CRT moral panickers and gross
1: it's really, really super gross. And, and those are people who for so many years were outwardly allying themselves with communities of color and especially black communities and have just like within months been like utterly alienating themselves and utterly throwing that under the bus. And yeah, I mean, I just, I'd say, I don't know how they sleep at night, but like I don't know, probably on piles of money uh, yeah, on a pillow with grant money for sure. Yeah. But
2: it's like, like for years we, we need school choice for black parents and black families. Here's our new white paper, uh, with this black family on it, by the way, anti-racist education is racist. Like, what do you, like
1: that, that shit is so, so stupid, but that's, that's, that's dozens of people, yep. dozens of people. Yep. Dozens of like, yeah, well-funded and well-platformed people. Um, but yeah, I mean, my only hope is that they have, for a short-term uh, false gain, have utterly like ruined themselves in the long term.
2: Because
1: yeah. people aren't, uh, aren't going to forget that either.
2: <laughs> oh, no, man. I, gotta, I have, like, have a hard time. Like Stark. Yeah. Yep. <laughs> like, absolutely. Uh, uh, another passage I would love to have you tell us a bit about is the back-to-school nights and the dad with the manila folder.
1: Oh <laughs> yeah, this was good. This uh, so I I spent the first uh I, what twelve years of my career teaching uh at a school that was an anti-racism like an arts magnet school, and so there was there was like nothing that I could do as an anti-racist teacher that was going to give me like real real pushback, um, and then. Uh, I switched to this school that was, like, a near-ring suburb that had a, a much larger population of white kids and a very, like, um, like white families who had been there for generations and generations and families and, like, all of our, like, BIPOC kids that are mostly like are, are newer to the community you don't have a lot of like the community clout or whatever. So it's like this much like stronger, you know, like the whiteness, the whiteness is strong in the, in the community. Right. Uh, one of one of the, the first days I was there, one of my like support staff uh, guys was like, <laughs> he described the he's described the community as being like old school white, uh, <laughs> which was something that like helped me conceptualize it really early on. But so yeah, so like I I was going in there being like, all right, I I do feel as a white educator that I might have um there might be some power, there might be some good work for me in working with a predominantly white community. Um and you know, like a lot of the worries that I had were were misplaced. Like the 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 kids there are, are really super great. Um And and there has been a lot of really cool work and a lot of cool work that's, that's led by the kids in that district. Um, But my very first night, like talking to uh, staff or talking, you know, talking to families, talking to whatever, was this back to school night. And I was in my room eating my dinner on like, you know, my 20 minute break um, where I was supposed to be standing outside for open house stuff. And a parent walks in with this manila folder and he's just like, all right, you're Mr. Rodemacher." okay, I need to talk to you. And I was like, cool. I'll be outside in a little bit. And he's like, no, we're going to, <laughs> we're doing this now. And so we sit down he pulls out this middle of folder and in this folder is like, I don't know, six different essays I've written online about anti-race education in some way. Um, and it's, they've been gone over with a the highlighter. There's notes. He's also like gone through the comments section of them and like, not just what oh, people dear. commented, but like what I responded to in their comments and like, Just all this stuff. And um, his ultimate argument that he was making was, and I I don't think this was a good faith argument that he was making, but his argument was, if we talk about race in school, it's going to make his white boys feel uncomfortable, and then they're going to become neo-Nazis. And so because he doesn't want his kids to become neo-Nazis, we shouldn't talk about race in school at all. <laughs> uh <laughs> it, was it was a bit of a curve it was a bit of a curveball, you know.
2: <laughs> yeah.
1: Um you know and that was uh it took me a while but it did, you know, there was a part of me that was like, you know, th- this This dad really just wanted to argue with me. He really wanted to fight with me. And there was a point in the conversation where I recognized, like, I can't, and it is not my job to try to fix this man. Uh, And, like, my job is to make sure that his son has the best possible year in my classroom as he can, right? So, like, there's got to be ways that I can... You know, I've got to make sure that his son will feel comfortable. I I've got to make sure, um, you know, whatever. Like, I need to get dad at least to a place that he's not trying to actively sabotage me all year just to get in these fights. But like, I'm also not going to sit here and argue his points with him. Um, and so, kind of that, the line I gave before was what I gave it was like, look, I, race and racism are a part of our world, and if we ignore it in class, it's going to spill out every other way. And like, it's never going to get better. And like young people are better at talking about it than adults are, especially if they have some tools to talk about it. And, you know, I, am I, and this is honest, right? Like I, I don't feel like it's my job as a teacher to change anyone's mind in my classroom. Like I want yeah. them. Yeah. I'm Yeah. I'm sure you're, the same like I want them to have the part of their tool is to be able to like listen and to understand why other people might think different things that's different than you need to agree with them and I want you to be able to to like as as well as possible be able to illustrate why you believe what you believe and like to me that that exchange right the the discussion rather than a debate is one of the most powerful things we could do with young people and one of the most powerful things missing from our world is the ability to like have two people that disagree talk to each other long enough that they understand why the other person feels the way they do and that's it right that the conversation doesn't need to go past that to the point where one of them brings the other one over to their side it's just a matter of like understanding one another um so i really i you know as often as he would let me talk, that's what I tried to say. A lot of it was just him. I, you know, he just wanted to press play on all the things he believed about, about everything. So um yeah, it was a very interesting uh <laughs> intro to the to the new school a bunch of years ago.
2: How would that year go in the end with that kid and that parent?
1: Um about as well, as you would think, I think once he realized that I wasn't interested in fighting with him, he kind of went and picked fights elsewhere, um, sure. mostly with with um, women that were on staff. Um, and, you know, I, I, the son didn't grow to love me and I was his favorite teacher ever. And but, you know, he, he got his voice out in class. Um, he did yeah. some really great stuff for me like he, he's a super 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 smart kid um you know it was but it was okay like yeah. we, it went all right by the end of the year like i you know i me and the dad weren't best friends but we were cordial with each other so that was a little bit better
2: no, we, we occupy this weird space where we're like we're we're classroom teachers but also like quasi public figures. And I feel like sometimes people mistake that like, I don't stand in class firing off the tweets that I fire off like in real life and given the takes I give in the podcast in my classroom. Like I'm not an idiot. And there's a <laughs> difference between like how I present myself in the classroom and like what we say in class and what we, in like the conversations we have. And then like how I am when I'm hosting Nerd Farmer or like rocking a panel someplace. Yeah, but, like, and like
1: how I'm gonna react to like a, a some white dude on Twitter, like <laughs> saying some like nonsense the way that yeah. we're I'm gonna respond to him is gonna be very different than how I'm gonna talk to a 12 year old like <laughs> right student yeah. in my class, right? Like I I'm not gonna I'm not gonna try to cancel the kid, right? Like uh <laughs> um yeah, it's a very, very different different thing, you know. Like I think both both things come from the same core values. Um yeah. and like, you know, I in a lot of ways, like, um those two things help each other. Like it it helps me to be able to have maybe a more full-throated voice of my own opinions outside, knowing that inside my classroom, my opinion isn't really that important. It's not really a place where I'm there to tell kids what I think and why.
2: Yeah. Another part of the book that I want to kind of talk about is I wish I had a time machine at times where I could go back and change choices that I made. Uh, I think about how intolerant and ridiculous I was when I was younger and the kind of person I was and how I am now. And I, I have a lot of regret about it. You talked about a student named Edward and you talk a lot about just student activism in general, but I think I want to close our conversation talking about like student activism in particular, like with trans students. Uh, in, in, in hindsight, the bravest person I ever knew was the kid who was trans in ninth grade in 19, like 94. Like if you think about how much courage it took to be trans in 1994, that person has way more courage than like the guy that joined the Marine Corps or anything else. I don't know where they are today, but like I I... I regret things that I said to them and that things that I allowed my friends to say to them. And part of that drives the way I engage with the trans and the, uh, well, the gay trans community today as a teacher. We were just saying that like our classroom practice is not like our Twitter or essay or panel practice, but our classroom practice does, I think is closer to, sorry, I think our our writer social media persona is closer to like the student activism work that we do. Talk a bit about why student activism is so essential to you, and why you've dedicated uh, so much of your efforts to working with the gay and trans community in high schools and middle—sorry, in middle schools. School, your middle school,
1: yeah. middle school. Yeah. Um, you know, I, I from my very first from the first book, there was this part of the book that that people have pulled out quite a bit. That was like my student bill of rights, um, mm. and one of those bill of rights, and like they're up in my classroom as well. Um, it's just like you have the right to um use changing your school as practice for changing the world. Yeah. And, you know, I did that in high school. Like <laughs> all my school board members knew me by name by the time I was finished with my high school. And like I was organizing protests about stuff and um, you know, stuff that in the end, maybe sure it wasn't the most important issues of in the world, but like they were important to me and in my school at that point. Um and to me, students are the most they're the most powerful group in the mm-hmm. school. Um, but often the individuals who are given the least amount of power. Uh, and so ways that we can embrace students like using their voices together and empower them to do that are always going to make our schools better places, even if it makes it more uncomfortable for the adults there. So I found that out early on in teaching and have, have always, you know, just, I just want to be there to side with the kids, you know, like I want to be there to, to support them in doing that. And I have done that a lot through like, you know, um, anti-racist student leadership and really trying to like help kids develop that in my classroom. And in the last, you know, probably five or six years, um, a lot more strongly with with a, the GLBTQ plus community of kids and I think that might have been it might have been a lot of things but you know like I think that younger people are more comfortable earlier being out about who they are yeah. so I know like you know 16 years ago my first year of teaching as an eighth grade teacher there was maybe one kid who was out about being gay and there was no kids who were out about being trans. Um, a number of those kids since then have transitioned. Um, and you know, this year I have, you know, like in a group of 140 kids, 14 are gender expansive in some way. Um, and mostly all in different ways. And there's, you know, this like larger group that supports each other, that is like working to make the school better for each other. Um, And also like, I know full well, especially with trans and, and gender expansive kids, a lack of support from the adults in their lives and from the places in their lives is actively dangerous for them. Um, they are the group, uh, in our country with the the highest teen suicide rate, um, huge mental health needs. And like, that's, you know, there's studies and all that, that show that. And there's also just like, I, in my classroom have watched that happen. You know, I, in my classroom have watched those kids, especially the kids that don't have, uh, homes that are supportive of them. Um, I've watched the toll that that takes on those kids. And so there's. There's only so much that, that we can do from school, but I'm kind of over the, Hey, we're all just learning here, trying to get better at this. Like, I, it's like, we no, we need to be, we need to be there already. Like we need to, these, these kids need to have, you know, safe and good places and comfortable places to go to the bathroom that aren't the nurse's office, places to change for gym if they need it and the community in our school needs to be one that validates their pronouns um, and their choice of name and their choice of identity and is informed about what that means so that from the moment they step through the door until they leave at the end of the day like the part of their life that we can control these kids are affirmed and empowered and safe um and yeah i mean like you know, my own kid is non-binary, uh, and and has a school that's that's relatively good about those things, and obviously has a home that's very supportive. But I've seen the the counter narrative to that um, too many times to not feel like it's an important thing to work on.
2: Well, and, and, and for me, it's such an obvious thing. And it's something I was so enraged about in like 2018 when conservatives like Angela Connolly in Tacoma, Washington, and uh, other conservatives around the country were pushing like these transgender bathroom bills. Like all, all transgender children want to do is be left the F alone and be able to learn in peace and not be harassed. And I just don't – I cannot – for the life of me understand why so many adults seem so determined to make their lives miserable whenever possible
1: and and it's only increasing and spreading um along with the crt stuff is this like moral panic around i mean just just attacking trans youth um yeah with we you know big bills in texas but but messages everywhere of look at i mean that's the the trolls on my twitter account when i talk about having a non-binary kid like Every once in a while, I get picked up by some garbage, super right-wing person who will retweet it. And then all of a sudden, I get a 100 messages calling me a child abuser and talking about how my child obviously has mental health issues or whatever. Um, And, like, the reality is, like, uh, when they started like living their life as a non-binary person, so using they, them pronouns, um, they became such a happier, more confident person. Sure. Um, because they weren't working against, you know, like their own identity in daily life. And I yeah, e- even if you believe it's a, a phase, or even if you believe that it's a trend or even if you believe whatever, like I disagree with you, but like who fucking cares? Like if if it's making (laughs) kids happy and safe, that's the end of the story, right? Like it's not hurting them. In fact, it's helping them like harming them is, is all this going after them as trans kids and all this, um, you know, using their dead names or using their old pronouns that's harming the kids. So like, you're right. Like, a, I I don't see how that's a challenge for people, especially for parents, to be like, you have two options, like, and one of them hurts your kid and one of them helps your kid. Which one are you going to do? And parents are like, yeah, yeah. like, <laughs> I, I don't get it. No, no, no.
2: Tom, I, I always enjoy talking to you. Uh, at some point, man, uh, if the Lord says the same, we need to chop it up in a happy hour in, D, in a D.C. hotel on someone else's bill Uh, i miss those days i enjoy you uh thank you so much for coming on
1: thanks for having me this was great
2: uh if people want to scoop up a copy of raising ollie where can they where where can they get it
1: uh pretty much anywhere right now i think still um yeah i i prefer that they go to a local bookstore uh or order through indie books or whatever um but it's 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 out there and around and I would say if you're listening right now, like
2: I am not the kind of person that's going to read a memoir about raising a child, but like, it's a great read, man. Like it really is. I really enjoyed it. I devoured it on my flight home last summer. Uh, Tom's an engaging writer's worth her time. Uh, Tom, one more thing. If folks want to follow you on the socials, where can they look?
1: Uh, pretty much just Twitter these days. Uh, and it's, uh, Mr. Tom Rad, M R T O M R A D.
2: All right, man. Thanks for making the time. Have a good one.
1: All right. You too. Well, kind if ever, y'all, make
2: sure that you get boosted. Uh, prosecute the police that killed Manuel Ellis and go Sounders.
0: Channel 253 is supported by Microsoft. Microsoft is committed to civic conversations like those on Channel 253 that inform and empower Washington communities. To learn more, visit aka.ms Microsoft in Washington. It's weird. It's so weird. weird. (laughs) Nerd Farmer is part of the Channel 253 Podcast Network. Check out our other shows. Interchangeable White Ladies, Give Me the Mic, We Art Tacoma, Move to Tacoma, Taco Man, Flounder's B Team, Crossing Division, Citizen Tacoma, and What Say You? This is Channel 253.